Lisa Robinson, my love, my cancer buddy. Um, I think we've known each other for a thousand years. I don't know, whatever. Quite that long. But uh, about 1970. I don't know when was Studio 54, 74, 6. Well, 76. Yeah, Studio. Right. Um, But I, I am such an admirer your um i just have to give a little kind of my view of you and then you tell us about you but i knew about this woman who was incredibly um active in the music world but um would get the best interviews with like the most incredible musicians and singers and celebrities. And you would think, what the hell? How, how is she doing this? Who is this person? And this petite little thing was like just killing it and hasn't stopped. I mean, you're archive is just a treasure and I really want to talk about that today but what I'd love for you to do is give everybody perspective on how you started and what your motivation was. I was a fan. I met a very cute guy. I married him three months after I met him, Richard Robinson, my late husband. We were married for 49 years. He opened a door, turned over a column he was writing in an English tiny music magazine, newspaper actually, and said, you do it. I don't want to do it anymore. And I said, I don't know how to write. He said, yes, you do. You know how to talk. You can write. And I certainly knew how to talk. And I just started writing in England about bands like Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, and then I met Mick Jagger backstage at a concert. I had already been on tour with Led Zeppelin because they wanted some good publicity, and they weren't getting any, and I loved them. And all the boys writing about rock and roll then thought they were a cheesy, heavy metal band. I thought they were majestic. I gave them some good press in England, Their parents read it. They were thrilled. So I went on five tours with them. And then I met Mick Jagger at a concert backstage. And when I first met him, you know, Mick was always my barometer of the way people acted around him because he took all the air, like all the air in the room. He walked in. It was all on him at that time. And everybody sort of panicked and acted weird and nervous. And when I met him, I just thought, Those are the tackiest shoes I ever saw. (laughs) They were rhinestone-covered like Papagallos or something. And he cracked up, and he just thought I was funny. And we just gossiped. And they took me on the 1975 Rolling Stones tour of the Americas. I was part of the entourage. And then everything started falling into place. Because when you got their seal of approval at that time, Everybody wanted to talk to me. I had a syndicated column. I had a syndicated radio show. I was writing for the New York Post for a long time. And Richard, my husband, and I were editing rock magazines. So my interviews were just 
chatty, gossipy, behind the scenes, backstage stuff. And that was a big relief for all those guys. Yeah. They mostly were guys then, except for, you know, someone like a national treasure such as Tina Turner, mm. who I also spent yeah. a lot of yeah. time with. But um, yeah, I have 5,000 digitized hours of audio interviews and on four or five external hard drives for safekeeping, five storage spaces with thousands and thousands of photos of mostly me with musicians because our rock magazines became shameless self-promotional tools, right. really. And um, yeah, it just kept going until then I was going to write a book in 1999. I decided to go to Vanity Fair instead. I've been there for about 25 years now and 24 years. And I did a lot of wonderful music portfolios with Annie Leibovitz and music issues and interviewed Beyonce and Jay-Z and Lady Gaga and Adele and Jennifer Lopez and very young Justin Bieber and Lizzo last summer. And you know, so I've still kind of kept this going. Yeah, I mean, the perspective you have is incredible. So, um, I just want to ask some kind of curiosity questions. So Led Zeppelin, I also in my early years of going to London, um, got to know them a little bit and, and, and have witnessed to Peter Grant, who was yes. a larger than life character. And why don't you Tell, talk about Peter Grant, because Peter Grant, he was a force. Yeah, Peter Grant was the manager of Led Zeppelin, and the first time I ever met him, I went to see the band in Jacksonville, Florida, and I was scared to go, because I kept hearing that they were raping and pillaging their way across the world, or America anyway, while right. their wives were right. home in England. And no, they weren't raping, but they were wild. And it was a wild scene in the 70s, and I was nervous, but I went. They were absolute, I think, here's the difference. The minute I met them, I started talking about music. I was talking about the blues and Elmore James and Muddy Waters and Alan Wolf mm -hmm. and Fairport Convention and Joni Mitchell and the incredible string band. And so they knew I knew about the music that influenced them right. because we were all sort of the same generation. Yeah. And that gave me a whole different access to yeah. them. So they were total sweethearts yeah. and gentlemen to me. Peter Grant was backstage in Jacksonville screaming his head <laughs> right. off about some bootleg t-shirts that were right. being sold outside right. of the venue. So that was my first introduction to him and he was frightening. Yeah. He was very, very large, very sort of East End, you know, English. Yeah. Very much like that espresso bongo scene mm -hmm. of rock and roll in the 60s yeah. in England. And he had rumored once to be holding someone outside of a window <laughs> by their shoes, by yeah. their feet. And so of course I was scared of him. Yeah. He was an absolute yeah. sweetheart, he, a gentleman yeah. and an angel he, to me. He always. really was uh, a necessary evil in a way because the music industry was just get exploding in a way that never happened before. And the ability for people to be exploited yeah. was also very possible. And I remember he and the guys would 
be at my friend's house because her husband worked for him too. And I would hear the conversations. I think, oh my God, this oh, guy, oh, he's so frightening. But he really protected them. Yes. And with his life, he, he would do anything for them. And I thought, they are so lucky. And, and the other part of Led Zeppelin that I think is is so important is this is a time when the guitar players these I mean watching Jimmy Page play yeah I mean you couldn't you, your mouth would just like what the hell is that I mean whatever you thought of the music just seeing that skill and the love that these guys had the guitar was so important then, right? What? Well, yes, of course. Also, it was the same with the Stones because we all kind of grew up on the black blues music. Yeah. And to me, Keith Richards, I mean, Jimmy was a virtuoso. He was like Jimi yeah. Hendrix, yeah. Jimmy Page. Yeah. But Keith Richards, just the feel of his guitar to me was just the most moving and yeah. special yeah. in rock and roll. But you know, it was interesting because I never reviewed bands. I never wrote about their albums. I never reviewed the concerts. But I probably knew a lot more about the music yeah. than a lot of these boys that were reviewing their albums yeah. and giving Zeppelin the worst reviews of all time. I mean, Jimmy Page, 30 years later, would still quote some of those reviews to me. And I would always just say, forget about yeah. it. Who cares? Well, what is people going to remember yeah. 30 years from now, that review or your record? Yeah, but the thing is, that kind of musician pour everything into what they do. It's so extremely personal. That kind of musician, just like Keith Richards, just like him, Jimi Hendrix, and even Eric Clapton and, and people like Jeff Beck. I mean, their commitment to their craft is so deep and so personal. I, I, I admire that so much. And of course, it's like the the music of my life. It's, it's for us, it was so much of what we really heard throughout our development as young adults and, and adults. You know, it spoiled me a lot because I don't, I still write about music. I'm very into hip hop. It's really kind of the only music I'm listening to now. But all I have to do is hear sunshine bores the daylights out of me from Rocks Off on the Rolling yeah. Stones album. And it just brings me back to standing backstage and, okay, that's the clue to go run for the cars. You know, it's yeah. my youth. I mean, yeah. that was my youth. My childhood was kind of very much blues and folk music and my parents were kind mm. of very left wing so we grew up with Lead Belly and Woody Guthrie right. and all that stuff but so I know where all the stuff comes yeah. from and it's interesting to me because you know I tell Mick Jagger now they sound like the guys they started out imitating yeah you know they're 80 and they yeah Hallam Wolf and Muddy Waters yeah. played until they died yeah and it's kind of interesting to watch it come full circle, even with someone like Robert Plant, because I did a story with him recently, last year for Vanity Fair, with Alison Krauss for the record they did mm. of Bluegrass Americana. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, 
they've been, Roberts, they've been offered $300 million or God knows how much to go reunite Zeppelin again. He doesn't want to do that. He mm. wants to go to Nashville and go and play the music from, you know, that he loved. Just kind of bluegrass country. It's called Americana, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. But just when you talk to people who really understand the roots of all this yeah. stuff, it's just amazing yeah. to me because then when I listen to hip hop and I hear all the samples and to me that's the most original music yeah. of the last 30 years yeah. Yeah. so it's all comes down to R&B and soul and black and music the, and the appreciation for what came before I remember for some crazy story I became very good friends with Eddie James and I loved her music and I and I was using it in a fashion show, and the music director said, every song you're using is an Etta James song. You should reach out to her, so I did. And we ended up being friends for a long period of time. And whenever she was in New York, I would always be backstage with her. And I remember seeing the people that were coming to see her after the show, right? And the one vivid memory I have is Keith Richards comes in and the love that he had for her and her talent, you could see the reverence and the respect, respect yeah. and, and that, that sort of lineage just gets handed down the way people feel about him. Like you said, it's their turn and it's really lovely. But I remember seeing his face, and he, he just lit up and was like, this woman was incredible, but he had a, a sense of her that was musical, and that was his, his understanding of how blues yeah. could really sound. It's, it's passing it on. They've always yeah. said that, it's passing so it great. on. You know, like... Whoever it was, a blues guy passed it on to Eric Clapton. He passed it on to Eddie right. Van Halen. He passed it on to Slash of Guns N' Roses. Yeah. It just like Stevie keeps Ray going, yeah. you know? And I've seen Keith also around Tina Turner and Ronnie Spector. Yeah. And just there's respect. tremendous respect. respect. Yes. So, you know, you were talking about Mick Jagger. And, you know, Mick Jagger is just this incredible showman and 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 I'm sure you have many stories, but one of the things that I thought about when, um, when the whole gender fluid comeback started recently in the last five years, 10 years, um, in the 70s, half of my customer were guys wearing my right. women's clothes, right. but not in drag, just wearing them. Right. And the first person, because I've been a designer since birth, right, that I recall doing this was Mick Jagger intuitively doing this. Remember? He started wearing girls' shirts, and he started wearing nail polish, and maybe a little lipstick, and maybe feminizing who, the way he moved. And it was sort of like this intuitive thing he felt he had to do, right? I think it might have also been Anita Pallenberg telling him to wear that stuff. But, you know, that's part but of that, it. But, but 
you don't do it unless you also feel it. Right. right? Oh, yeah, no, no. And he was very androgynous. And he yeah. did it, yeah. And he did it so well, nobody thought of anything except how hot is this guy? Like, what the hell? He is hot. Tell me about your observations of, of that. Well, um, when I first started seeing pictures of him in the 60s, I mean, I was always a Stones fan more than a Beatles fan mm -hmm. until I got to really know John Lennon, right. who I love right. dearly. Right. Um, only John Lennon in that band. But um, I thought he was just sexy and gorgeous, without question. Never even occurred to me. Years later, I talked to him about androgyny and bisexuality, and we had very frank conversations about it, which will remain under lock and key until I sell all these archives mm -hmm. to someone. But um, I did write a little bit about it in an interview I did with him and Andy Warhol's interview, where he said to me that in the 60s he found it interesting to be attractive to members of both sets. Yeah. In the 70s, of course, prior to AIDS, with David Bowie, and then you know years later with Boy George, and now with Harry Styles, I mean, it's a lot the British. Mm -hmm. The British have always, my husband always used to say, it doesn't take much for a guy, and a British guy to just put on a dress. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, and it goes back to that dance hall tradition, and you know, all of that sort of vaudevillian thing. But I mean, Ray Davies never was wearing a dress that I recall, but he did write a beautiful album called Come Dancing mm -hmm. about that yeah. whole world. Yeah. But Bowie, you know, everybody thought it was shocking when he was the Ziggy Stardust mm. persona. And he came to New York the first time I met him. He had very long hair and a page boy, wore a dress and yellow patent leather Mary Jane shoes. And I just had been so used to the Warhol crowd that I didn't think twice about it. But, you know, the mainstream yeah. press was shocked. But I, I, shocked. Think, I think the British thing is really valid. I remember going to London... 64, 65, and starting to see this gray city, gray. Not only was the weather gray, it was gray. People wore gray herringbone, gray plaid, gray whatever. And then this jolt of color, this jolt out of nowhere, like exploded. Yeah. And then before you could even think of what was happening, London was all color. And that, and in, in the world in the 60s, that's where it began. And I think it's because of the conservative nature of the grayness and of the, of the society and the properness that if it's gonna happen anywhere, that seems like that's where it's going to fester and take place. So I think there's a lot of that tradition that people, especially baby boomers, are going to sort of go against, bring the color, bring that change of gender and all of that. I, I was, I remember thinking the grayness is overwhelming. And then when the color came, the contrast against the gray really was an, a statement about 
against the norm, against the conservatism. Of course, in America also, because of the anti-Vietnam War and all of that, San Francisco with the flowers and love power and all that, flower power and all that stuff happened kind of, you know, sometimes things are just in the air. They're sort of like in the ether and mm. the youth really just makes stuff yeah. happen. I'm worried about now because all I see is everybody looking at a phone. I don't see kids starting anything, but I always have hope that whenever anything gets really oppressive and dark and gray and bad, then stuff comes to life and an art movement forms. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing about London is after Carnaby Street and Kings Road and all of that stuff in the 60s, by the beginning of the 70s, after Glitter Rock started, it turned black and white again. Yeah. And then there was punk and yeah. there was the clash yeah. and the sex pistols and they cut their hair and CBGBs in New York and black and white. So it nothing lasts forever. Mm. It just always changes. Yeah. But the the explosion, that yeah. big explosion was definitely in the mid 60s in London. Um the you talked about John Lennon and you know, I totally agree with you. I I just found him extraordinary and he used to come to the shop with Yoko and sit and and just funny 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 a sense yeah. of humor that so. could just kill you it was so great she would try on clothes and he would say the funniest things and I, I just thought I can't believe John Lennon is hanging out every time she goes shop, hanging out here and just entertaining, like carelessly, just having a good time, hanging out, lying back on the on the banquets. What's your experience with wow. him? I have so many. Um <clears throat> The first time I ever met him was in England. My husband was going to do an interview with John and Yoko. I always think of it as one word, John and, John Yoko. and Yoko. And it was at Apple offices. And I don't know if they were stoned or what was it, or Richard wasn't as good an interviewer as I was. <laughs> but I remember sitting there the whole time listening to them just pontificate about politics and Richard asking yeah. stilted questions. And I thought, if I ever get a chance to talk to him, this is not going to come out like this. And then Bob Gruen called me one day. He's a photographer who was very close with them. Yeah. They were living on Bank Street. They came to New York. And he said, Yoko has an album and she wants to do an interview with a woman. And I was probably the only woman doing interviews with musicians then. So I went to Bank Street. And I sat there and I talked to Yoko about her album for about an hour and a half. I had listened to the whole, however many songs there were, 20 something. And we had a really good conversation about women and women's mm. liberation and all of that. And then she kind of brought John back out afterwards, as I said, like dessert, <laughs> like from the back right. room. And we just sat and just gossiped. He wanted to know dirt about David Bowie and Mick Jagger right. and Brian Ferry. And <laughs> mm. it was like, they all wanted to know yeah, about each yeah. other. And because I was friends with all of them, well, friendly, mm -hmm. I have to qualify that a little bit. Because when you're a journalist, with the exception of a few people, you know, they're not really your friends. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you're friendly. And they trusted me, which was mm -hmm. 
valid because I didn't ever, if something was off the record, it was off the record. Yeah. But then I started to see John a lot when they moved to the Dakota. I went up there. She liked me. So that was the seal of approval. So I got to go there and talk to him. And then when they split up for a while and he moved with May to an apartment on East 50-something mm. or 49th, 52nd, whichever it was, and I went to that apartment and talked to him there. In fact, it was after a Beatles convention, and I asked him, would you ever go to a Beatlefest convention? And he said, um, I don't think so, but it's good for the family business. I like the, that he do it. He says, a little Rudolph Valentino, but... So we mm -hmm. laughed about that. And I said, well, I have four Beatles trays. And he went, I don't have a tray. So like an idiot, <laughs> I messengered over a tray to him the next day. So I now only have three. Yeah. I did also tell him I had a lunchbox and a thermos. I didn't buy it as a kid. Because as I said, I wasn't a Beatles mm -hmm. fan. I was a Stones girl. Right. But um, somebody gave them to me, I guess. I said, I have a lunchbox and I have a tray. And he said... I don't have that. I said, well, you're not getting yeah. that. But he was really, really funny. He would call me up on the phone and he'd go, hello, it's me, John Beatles. And I'd say, John, <laughs> I don't know any other John with a Liverpool accent. He, don't he worry does. about it. He, I think he just did that. I, I he have, was very bitchy. Yeah. He could be very bitchy I, and very funny and very always witty. Yeah, really witty. Yeah. So I, I did, um, you know, I got to know them for doing stuff for um, Yoko. And then when he died, um, she asked me to do her outfit for his funeral. And it was, you know, it was so bittersweet. Um, I really thought he was an incredibly special, enlightened person. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. not, not, I don't want to say just a musician because I've, I'm a, big music fan, but there was something enlightened about him. He was on another plane. I he think, really was. And also she, his love for her. Is that they were on, they were on that plane. He was obsessed with her. Yeah. And she opened his eyes to a lot of stuff he didn't know about. Yeah. And he was very, very um, respectful and... Very nice about women, I think, mm -hmm. and certainly was great to me. He I I think so. I I he he had this acidy, witty yeah. sense of humor, but his love for her. I mean, he would jest and make fun when she would try something on, but in, not in a cruel way. And but the love he had for her yeah. was overwhelming yeah. and really quite beautiful. I didn't have a point of view about them breaking up the Beatles or any of those, that kind of stuff. I didn't really think about it that much, but I was always a John Lennon fan and I always felt that his, his intelligence, it's sort of a spiritual intelligence or some other level was really <clears throat> profound. Well, you know, he just wanted her with him all the time. Yeah. It was that simple. And I don't think that the band was used to that. There was a very macho scene in England then. And yes, Linda McCartney was around Paul, but Yoko was literally next to him yeah. on the piano. Yeah. And at one point, I remember talking to George Harrison, 
And because I said, I think Yoko gets such an unfair rap for breaking you guys up. I thought it was racist. Right. It was misogynist. And he said, it's not what broke us up. He said, I didn't want to go in the studio and have Paul McCartney tell me what to play anymore. Right. So, you know, I think that's all been well documented yeah, since. Yeah, yeah. But when he told me that in 1973 or whenever it was, right. and I wrote it, it was a big deal. Big deal. Big deal. Yeah. And George Harrison. Oh, my God. Huh. I just loved him. And, and you know, I loved George Harrison and Eric Clapton a lot. And the fact that this Patty Boyd thing What's the, what happened with that? What happened with that is that, jo well, as far as I know, I mean, Eric talked to me about it a little bit. Patty talked about it once, I think, to me when I did an interview with her for not her book, but something. And George talked to me about it. I mean, Eric was married to her, right? Or with her or living with well, her? Well, I, I think George Harrison was living with her. And he and, then she left he and Eric yes, were best friends. Yes, they were friends. down the road. They lived down the road. They and were best they, yeah. friends. And I think Eric maybe was on drugs. I think there was a drug issue. And Patty and George just started having an affair and fell in love. No, I think it was and, the other oh, way Oh, the around. other way around. It's the other way okay, around. Okay, let's forget and, that. And so... Uh, Wait, then, who was she? Then she went... Oh, she was with George, and then she fell in love with, with Eric. And with yes, Eric that's Clapton. And, okay. and so Patty, because I was in London a lot around that time, and she was an influencer. Oh, she's beautiful. She was an influencer. If she, you want to... How is... What would you identify? <laughs> she would be an influencer. She was adorable, and so much the look of the time... And anything she wore, any way she wore her hair, there were a few girls, and she was one of them, and any way she wore her hair, the way she wore her clothes, whatever boots she was wearing, everybody, oh, yeah. everybody wanted to have. And she was, you know, a, a, a magnet to like for guys in the music yeah. world. And George Harrison, to me, was always so gorgeous. It was the kind of look I loved at the time and when I heard that they were together I thought oh, of course of course they're together and I thought that's it done and done and then Eric Clapton Patty Boyd how did that happen and so he wrote um Layla Layla which you know it was just such an incredible powerful passionate song for her Actually, Rita Coolidge wrote Layla to begin with and never got the credit for it. You're but that's kidding. a whole other story. Yes, she since has gotten some grudging credit. I mean, Eric wrote the lyrics, but oh, okay. she came with the original riff. And anyway, the um, thing about that is it was the 70s, 60s, then the 70s. Girls like Twiggy, Chrissy Shrimpton, Jane Birkin, yeah. Anita Pallenberg, yeah. Patty Boyd. I mean, that whole group of girls looking like that, coming out of the women's liberation era, has never been matched. Yeah. I don't care you can name 25 influencers you know, to me today. Yeah. There's nothing ever been yeah. like that. The supermodels, gorgeous, different, Christy, Naomi, different. all that. Yes, great. But that was the first time. I mean, I'm not saying that women like Dovima and Susie mm -hmm. Parker and people in the 40s, you know, for those different. of us who remember yeah. all that, 
it was different fashions create different times. This was a wild time. And they and created And girls were themselves. all sleepy. Yeah. People, everybody yeah. was sleeping yeah. with everybody. everybody. And, but they created themselves. Yeah. They weren't. Styled. Uh, they weren't styled. They weren't models, modeling clothes for, yes, they modeled, but they really created their looks. They really invented a lot of those looks. I mean, that was a, a powerful influence for an entire generation. I, every, everybody that calls themselves a baby boomer was influenced by a look by one of those girls. Totally. Well, Norma, you tell me, because I remember going to discotheques wearing your miniskirts, Betsy Johnson's miniskirts, Rudy Gernreich, no bra, miniskirts, fishnet t-shirts as a dress. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was very young and very thin, and I could get away with all that, but... You all came up with the same thing at the same time also. Why? How? Well, so the interesting thing, my experience with the mini was I was, I had my job at the airline so I could go to London every weekend for four years. And so I was there when this was all starting. And I remember seeing these short skirts thinking, oh, my God what the hell is this? In New York, this is 65, right? In New York, nobody wore a skirt above their knee. Nobody did. It was too early. I always have a needle and thread with me because I don't know how to put zippers at the time into pants. So I would sew myself into my pants, go to the bathroom with the seam ripper, sew myself back up. Wait, so what job at the, what were you doing at the I, I, after I graduated from FIT, I got a job at Northwest Orient Airlines in the office huh. so I could travel. I had no idea what was going on in London. Nobody really knew yet. Right. And I remember ending up at a boarding house in Chelsea, just off Kings Road, and seeing there's something going on here. I had chills. I would hear this music that I never heard before because I was into Motown and like so blues, nothing like this. And my, I was, I was like electrified. I couldn't believe I could, I was blushing all the time. I was excited and I saw short skirts. I went back to my room. I hemmed up every skirt I had up to here with my thread. And when I came back to New York, I just made all my skirts shorter. In New York, the cars would stop and call me a prostitute, oh. call, like names that you can imagine. I was like, you don't know. You don't know what's going on. And then finally, when I started my business and start, I started bringing clothes back, from bus stop and Biba and all of those. And then I sold those for a while and then I decided to make my own things. And what I did that I hadn't seen anywhere was hot pants. I started making hot pants. I didn't know anybody that was. And, I, and hot pants, I had a huge business in hot pants, tiny shorts. And it was good because I couldn't afford fabric. So I could take all my fabric sw swatches, scraps, and make patchwork 
hot pants and velvet and satin. And so that's what I started doing. And I started doing, by, by that point when studio came, it was mini skirts were already sort of just yeah. in, the, in, the, in the zeitgeist and it was just part of it. But seeing a mini skirt for the first time meant that you couldn't wear a garter belt and stockings anymore. Or girdles. And girdles, because that's what we were wearing. And, and so the invention of tights. Who wore tights before that? Nobody. No, who wore, who wore stockings that were panties? No, you hooked them onto a garter belt or to a girdle. So now this transition of fashion into a lifestyle that meant you could walk a different way, act a different way. Who wore a bra? Nobody. I mean, from cone bras, the days. from cone bras to <laughs> right. Who's wearing a bra? Oh, no. Who's wearing underwear? Like what's it's like nothing, nothing related. So those girls in that time were hugely influential. Right. And and the shape of the body from the 50s curvy, pointy bras to Kardashian kind of bodies to <laughs> twiggy and all of these lanky thin long legs the whole proportion changed everything changed and the music the fashion just connected and you know, the always, politics it always has and the yeah, politics right. the three were so tightly bound together. Right, and you know I have this thing about, I'm such a basketball fanatic, but to me there is such a connection now, especially with hip hop and basketball mm -hmm. and fashion and people, and MTV also changed it again yeah. in the 80s yeah. because you could start to see all these videos. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that it was a good thing because all these major budgets to make these massive little movies that were supposed to tell you what the music sounded like as opposed to you lying on your floor smoking a joint imagining mm. what the yeah. music was about but the music and the fashion intrinsically has always been connected yeah. without question and those girls to get back to that point were sleeping with those guys because those were the prettiest girls in London and those yeah. were the most famous guys. And the same thing happened in Laurel Canyon in the 70s because I did an oral history of Laurel Canyon for Vanity Fair and I spoke to Joni Mitchell and Judy Collins and Linda Ronstadt yeah. and, you know, the guys from the Eagles and uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and all of them and they all were sleeping with yeah. each other. I mean, so it wasn't so much, I mean, they took drugs together, they made music together, and they slept together. It was a scene. There was the same thing in New York in mm. the 70s with the whole CBGB scene. You know, scenes aren't always meant mm. to last. No. But when they happen, they can change yeah, and the world. They, and the people that are in that group are very influential. Sometimes this stuff comes up from the streets, and people don't always get the proper credit for it. It's the person who takes it out to the masses mm -hmm. who gets the credit. Yeah. I mean, you have been ripped off, let's not go there, but by so many people of stuff you did decades, decades before other people decided to do a puffy jacket or... You know, you know. Uh, you know my feeling about it, that is, 
when I really couldn't afford to stay in business the next day, I would cry myself to sleep over it. But I look at it now and I think maybe that's why I have longevity. Um, and so I kind of wear it as a badge of honor and maybe that's why I'm still here. But the, the, the connection to the experience of the music industry and the fashion industry, how many stories have you written about people whose music has gotten ripped off? How people have taken riffs or literally just lifted creativity and made it there. So it's sort of like when it's a creative thing, people don't respect it in the same way they do other things. They feel if it's creative, it's free. You can take it, you well, can own it. Yeah, I mean, artists have always had this issue yeah. of any kind, yep. you know? But also, I think a lot of stuff, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with AI, but certainly with the internet and certainly everything being accessible to everybody, certainly did get an awful yeah. lot of mediocre people taking stuff from more talented and often underappreciated mm. people. And I mean, I know photographers and designers and musicians who got famous after they died. Yeah. I mean, we all know yeah. those. And it's tragic in one way, but on the other hand, you know, ultimately, I think the really good stuff rises to the top. Unless. 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 I mean, I remember having fights with so many, not fights, but arguments with musicians who were bitching about a record company president and something that, and they weren't doing enough of them and this and that, and, you know, whether it was Lou Reed or the Black Crows or whoever, and I always used to say to them, who was the president of Mercury Records in 1974? And they'd say, oh, I don't know. What difference does it make? And I'd say, well, do you remember that man? Or do you remember Rod Stewart's Every Picture right, takes, right. Tells a Story? Right. That's a I mean, great because that, line. Because that's the that's truth. That's a great I line. I mean, the work lasts. Yeah. The talent, the art, the work, I am optimistic that yeah. it lasts. I mean, I am unfortunately a hoarder or you could say an archivist, or you could just say I never threw anything out. <laughs> I mean, I have every note I ever took from every Led Zeppelin concert I ever went to on pink Beverly Hills Hotel little pads, in envelopes with the dates marked on them, in boxes and boxes and boxes, five storage spaces. You come to my apartment, it's a museum. I mean, when you told me you divested yourself of stuff, I got so inspired, and I started talking to people Come and buy my 8,000 LPs. Come and take books. I've got yeah. 10,000 books. I've got, I have five storage spaces. I have all this stuff. It's amazing. And I'm still living with all this it's amazing. stuff. I, when, when you and I went through your archive and your, um, and this list of people that you've interviewed, it basically, alphabetically, is the history of the music business in our age and our time. And like you could name, I could sit here with the list and call out the name and you have a one-liner or a paragraph or a story. It's a, it's a, it, it was just unbelievable. And we did this video together that 
really encompasses all of this archival um, reference that you have that is so extraordinary. I can't believe somebody isn't like taking, I can't either, pulling but that's it up. Another, but, yeah. uh, but I think I think it's it's a treasure that it's time will come that people will recognize how important it is. I hope it's during I in think, my lifetime. Yeah, but I, I also think it's still something you should be using in some way. That's my intuition about it. I have a question. The music industry has a an incredible um, new wave of influence and having a huge concert, whether it's Adele and doing these major performances with a fan base that is fanatically loyal. And I mean, Beyonce is just a phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, she truly is a phenomenon. And the, the passion people have about going to her concert, experiencing it, and then talking about it is, is just amazing. And why do you think these these things are happening Well, first now? of all, I think that the positive thing about all of this is the fact that women are, you know, finally at the top of the game concert-wise, whether it's Taylor Swift or Beyonce or Adele or Lady Gaga prior to mm -hmm. who I love. Yeah. Um, Megan Thee Stallion, Rihanna, you know, Dua Lipa. Yeah. I mean, Rihanna's more famous now for her lingerie and her skincare line. And her but, babies. Yeah, but she's so sexy, she's, Rihanna. Oh, I think she's so sexy. I, I think she's but And she's talented. a sweetheart and really? so elegant. Um, Beyonce, I think it's very easy to understand. First of all, she's a lovely girl. And second of all, she works harder than anybody on you the planet, I think. But she also represents something to young black women uh, on a very mass popular level as a pop star. But she can do anything. She can rap. She can sing R&B. She can dance. You know, she's kind of the whole package. She's sort of a representation to a whole culture that, in a way, Michael Jackson was. Mm -hmm. And it's not just because mm -hmm. she's black. It's because... She's adorable. She's global, and, universal. Yeah, and yeah. the thing is, I think that Adele, of course, who's got an amazing killer mm -hmm. voice, um, these women have fan bases now that were not possible before the internet, mm -hmm. before social media, mm -hmm. before being able to be on everybody's phone and everybody's yeah. house. Well, first it was MTV with everybody's house. Now it's in palm of your hand right so I think that has a lot to do with it and I also think in the terms of like even Taylor Swift it's teenage girls you mm -hmm. know they have somebody they identify with 11 I think to 17 is the demographic of yeah. most of them I do think that a lot of these girls grow out of them mm -hmm. it's like we look at boy bands you know in sync Backstreet yeah. Boys BTS all of those boy bands One Direction Clearly, Harry Styles was always going to be the biggest star coming yeah, out of that yeah, band. Yeah. Justin Timberlake was always going to be the biggest star coming out of NSYNC. Beyonce was going to be the biggest star coming out of Destiny. Destiny's Child. Taylor Swift wasn't going to stay in Nashville for long. You know, it's just very clear what happens when people are ambitious and they work hard and they make 
music that appeals to Connects. millions yeah. of people. Yeah. And um, they just don't stop. They're driven, mm. driven. Madonna's in her 60s. So she still wants to perform. She's still driven. Yeah. You know, the Stones putting out a new record. And I love they it. And they tour again in I the love 80s. It. I mean. I love it. I mean, uh, and of course, these are people who sang about not doing it in your 80s, but we're a different breed. You know, we are a different breed. And there's. Well, there's first of all, I'm not sure everybody thought that we were all going to live this long. Right. You know, uh, the lifespan has changed mm. with better medicines and wellness and everything mm. else that everybody does to take care of themselves. But also, I just think that, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. Mm. You can't predict. I mean, I've learned that you really... I could see Billy Joel when he played the piano in a little tiny bar on the east side of Manhattan called J.P.'s in the 70s, and there were three people in the room. And I knew he'd be a big star. Did you? I met Michael Jackson when he was 12, and I was in Encino, and there's a picture in one of my books of that, and I also posted it on the dreaded Instagram, but it's like I called my best friend that day, and I said, this kid's gonna be the greatest yeah. entertainer in the world. Yeah. And she said, how can you tell he's 12? I, I said, I can tell. I, you just, I, sometimes you know. I know, I remember, um, when they were filming The Wiz, I did the costumes for Emerald City sequences. And so they invited, Joel Schumacher invited me to go to the set. And uh, I went and Diana Ross and Michael Jackson were doing the Yellow Brick Road scene. And I was like, oh my God, that's the kid from Jackson 5. Holy crap. What is that? What is he? Ooh, his voice, I was like, this is, this is, I'm seeing something here. There's this, this guy's gonna be unbelievable. I remember coming back to the office saying, remember the kid? <laughs> you know that kid? Oh yeah. Oh my God, Michael Jackson, unbelievable. And I, I never forgot it. I just was like stunned to, to see it. And also to see the influence Diana Ross had on him. I mean, think about that and think about their experience together. And, and I also happen to think Diana Ross is another influencer star, right? Beyonce used to watch videos of, of the course Supremes she did. again and again of and again. Of course she and did. And in her concert, I think it was in LA, maybe on her birthday, September 4th this past year. Everybody went to see her show. There's tons of people, Kardashians, Meghan Markle, all these people backstage at her show were posing for their own Instagram. The only person that Beyonce took a picture with was Diana Ross when she came on stage to sing Happy Birthday to Stop. Beyonce. That's so cool. Yes, and the thing is, Beyonce told me in one of the times I interviewed her, that that was just her idea of glamour and poise and elegance. Mm. And she watched those tapes over, VHS tapes yeah. her father showed her of Motown. And when I did my oral history of Motown for Vanity Fair, I talked to everybody about everybody. And I had talked to Michael so many times in his life. In fact, when he was here doing The Wiz, 
I took him to Studio 54 one night. Yes. And yes. I have funny pictures of me and him on the sofa, yes. the yeah. silver sofa. And Frank Lebowitz thinks she danced with him there that night, but Probably. I don't remember. Probably. Yeah, I mean, I remember pretty much everything, but I'm not sure about that. But then again, I used to drink a lot <laughs> when I went to Studio 54. Um, I never took drugs, actually. Yeah. That's another reason. I think that I have a kind of longevity in totally. this Totally, and, and a memory. I never slept yeah. with the musicians. I never took drugs. It was always incredibly important for me, first of all, I was married to a guy who was much cuter than they were, and I also did not want to be ever yeah. perceived as some groupie. Yeah. It was very important to me that I was very professional. Absolutely, yeah. And also, a lot of these guys came from farms in England, and I thought they were hicks. You know, mm. I'm from New York City. No, it was, it was very discerning. There's a survival instinct that I think you had, I had for sure during that time. I, I, um, the, the Diana Ross thing with Beyonce and Diana Ross uh, influence, um, I think she, I remember being in Central Park when the downpour, Me too. being there and, and that experience and seeing the way she just went on with it and the appreciation and the love for her just went like off the charts in that moment. And and she was a customer of mine for a really long time and would come in and again, like Cher and everybody else, they were their own stylists and they would pick what they wanted. And she always, um, she had, a, and I believe still does, has an, sort of this elegance about her that from day one, you looked at her, and this is another influencer, right? Never used them, but talk about the influence of this woman well, from the, not only the way she looked, but the influence on music and musicians. Yeah, I mean, what happened at Motown, because I've spent about 80 hours talking to Barry Gordy and Suzanne DePass and Diana, mm -hmm. everybody, they, Barry Gordy, came from Detroit, and he thought he would start a music company that would be like the Ford Motor Company right. where he had worked. You know, you just like sort of churn mm -hmm. out these records like an assembly line. However, all these kids, Smokey Robinson, Diana yeah. Ross, Stevie Wonder, The Temptations, right. The Four Tops, they all lived around the same area, and they all wanted to be signed to Motown mm -hmm. once he had his first hit which was Money, and then Smokey Robinson had the other big hit, I think Tears of a Clown, Tears of a Clown one yeah. of those. And it was the first black-owned record company, but the music got on the radio. Barry used to start out his albums by putting white people on the cover, and people didn't know that they were all black musicians on radio stations that would not play black How music. How brilliant. And oh, my God. It crossed over. So it was the first music that really crossed over. I mean, if you heard Baby Love on the radio, it didn't sound like anything mm. else. And the thing is, yeah. Barry was so smart. He hired Charlie Atkins, who was a choreographer, to teach them how to dance. Yeah. Yeah. He hired a woman, Maxine Powell, mm. who I interviewed at length, to teach them etiquette, how to walk, how to talk, how to wear white gloves. And she said to me, she's dead, but... She was alive when I talked to her, and she said, 
I had to teach them etiquette, and I told the Supremes, you have, they always used to say to me, we just want to hit record. And I used to say, no, you have to know which fork to use because you're going to be having dinner with kings and queens. And that is exactly what happened. Yeah. You know, the Supremes went to England, the Beatles welcomed them. They did eventually meet Queen mm -hmm. Elizabeth. And Diana Ross was always dressed to the nines. I mean, she was so elegant and so her just glamorous. Her just body glamorous. language, her uh, just ev every angle of her face. She was really so beautiful, and um, there wasn't anything she ever put on that she didn't look gorgeous. And I, I just have to say, and I've seen a lot of people, a lot of famous people, <laughs> yeah. a lot of people trying on clothes and. She just looked good in everything um, and had an elegance about her. I, I, I want to talk for a minute about Donna Summer. Yes. Because we have to. Oh, I love Donna <laughs> we Summer. We love Donna Summer. That was great. I mean, Donna, you know, the interesting thing is that whole record, Love to Love You Baby, started because our mutual friend, the late Neil Bogart, had been at a party and he heard Serge Gainsbourg and Jane Birkin's Je Yeah. which was an orgasmic kind of <laughs> right. long French dance song. And people kept saying, play it again, play it again, play it again. And he thought, if I could do a 20-minute version of something like this, I'll have a hit. Yeah. And Donna was in Germany with Giorgio Moroda, and she was recording, and they told her they wanted her to record this song like that, with this kind of orgasmic yeah. breathing and everything. And Donna said, you know, she was a church-going girl. Exactly. And she was um, a prude. I think she had been abused by a pastor or something. There's some ugly story yeah. in her past. But she nonetheless didn't want to do this. And so she told me, and this has since been well-documented, in her documentaries and everything, that she had to lie down on the floor, have candles lit, turn the lights <laughs> off, and then do the song. And then, of course, the minute it started playing in discos and clubs, it was a massive hit. It was it was so wild. And, and Donna, of course, was completely opposite. Yeah. She could not be further away from, from that, that image. Orgasmic kind of breathing. Like, she was this practical kind of t-shirt jeans person who didn't didn't have any of that pretense right at all and um just a very very straight-minded simple religious religious, religious yeah. very very um intensely principled person and and that really was the joke of it all it's like what are we going to put her in? I know. <laughs> you mean clothes. What do you yeah. want to wear? Yeah. Like, what do you want to wear? It's like, I don't know. You know, she would just, but she liked dressing up, but she, it was like she was going to a costume party. I know. Oh, so many of them are like that. But with her. But she really. I know. And when I interviewed her, kind of towards the end of her life, I did an oral history of disco for Vanity Fair. And I spoke to her at length. She was living in Nashville with Bruce, her husband, and her children. And she told me she had to leave L.A. because she couldn't stand seeing men on the street exposing themselves. I said, what? 
who's on the street exposing themselves? I mean, I grew up going to school in the Bronx on the subway mm -hmm. and seeing that, but I wasn't aware that this was a streetwise problem in Los Angeles. But she said, I can't bring my children up in that city. That's a sinful city. Yeah. And then she moved to Nashville, and that's when we yeah. spent a lot of time talking. Yeah. But she was so down to earth and so smart. Yeah. And, really smart. And, and a really a great voice. I mean, yes. she, I, I think she sang in the choir and yeah. had all of that kind of real structure to, I mean, the, the heights of the notes and the range was just fabulous and I don't think people knew how um, talented she really was um, the breadth of her talent but she made a lot of people very happy a lot of people danced till they dropped listening and dancing to her music she really was a huge influence again an influencer on people's happiness during that period of time. I mean, if I hear any of those disco songs now, even the one-hit wonders like, whatever, Ring My Bell, or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I heard Hollywood swinging the other night yeah. in a restaurant, and I thought, oh, wow, and I still they're feel happy like dancing. Songs. Yeah. yeah. No, there are songs to make you happy. There are songs to make life fun, and... We needed it that at that time. Yes. We Same needed, with Motown. Yeah, we needed it. Motown. And yeah, Motown also. You hear those songs if you grew up to it, and it just like brings you back to a time. But to me, the most interesting thing about Motown, and I've told this to Barry Gordy, that I felt he was an incredibly important person in the civil rights yeah. movement. Because since the music crossed over, people, like at first, he said he used to get letters saying, we're not playing your music, and parents wouldn't let their kids listen to it. And the Temptations told me when they first went out on tour, there was a rope in the middle of the audience. Black kids had to sit on one side, white kids had mm. to sit on the other, and by the end of their tour, the rope was gone. Yeah. And everybody was yeah. dancing together. I mean, listen, I had to listen to stories from Tina Turner for years about Ike before she even wrote about it, about getting beaten up yeah. and all of that. And I had to hear about Martha Reeves telling me when they played the Chitlin circuit, they didn't have proper dressing rooms. They had to cook food on the radiators. I mean, when you think of all the things that uh, people went through. Stories are, yeah. uh, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Uh, and, heartbreaking. And sickening. And that, that kind of talent experience that and uh it, it just it just doesn't seem possible right but you know what's interesting to me because we asked about john lennon before and we were just talking about beyonce and it just reminded me of something she told me that the first time her parents ever heard her sing they didn't know she could really sing in public was at a talent show at her school and she sang imagine she sang John Lennon's Imagine. Stop. That was her song. That is so cool. She said, that was my song. And her and Miss Tina, her mother, told me, was that my child? I didn't know she could sing like that. But then she started doing beauty pageants, and then her mother pulled her out of the beauty pageants. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's just such a... That's the thing that unites people. Mm. I mean, when you think of, like, a seven-year-old Beyonce, or however old she was, yeah. singing John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine. Music and that really she chose, brings the world that she together. Chose that is, yeah. is extraordinary. Um, I I think um, 
You know, I think about Whitney Houston and that voice, and I, I can't think of anybody, and, and I think Adele is extremely talented, and there are so many Aretha? great talent. Aretha. But Whitney Houston, again, I'm thinking influencer, musician, her influence was unbelievable. And, and so these life experiences that are so difficult, that are part of performers' lives, and I think part of that pain and the passion in the way they sing, or sing are so connected. But I really, I think about Whitney Houston, and I remember the first time she started wearing my clothes, I thought, Oh my God, she's gorgeous. Like she looks great in everything. And then her voice just kept getting better and better. It seemed like every time she matured, the song was better, the sound was better, and all of this intensity. And then having to experience seeing something disappear like that for people who are fans and love it. I guess it's like the Judy Garland fans. Yes. It's that thing. Marilyn Monroe. Ma yeah, I mean. like it really takes a generation. It captures a, a massive amount of people. And I wonder, I wonder, is it that the power of their talent and the passion and the pain of it so intense that they capture us and then we we see that there's this under thing that might have been part of the passion i could never figure it out what what well, is that well i never really I, I knew whitney i spoke to her a few times i never really properly interviewed her because she was always kept very distant yeah. um but i've talked to enough female musicians particularly ones who've had big drug problems, Stevie Nicks, um, others who've talked about it. And I think there's a lot going on. First of all, a lot of them are very insecure, but they're fine when they get on a stage. Yeah. But yeah. the self-doubts, the rejection, the stuff that happened with their families, right. with them as children, right. you know, that doesn't matter. You don't separate that just because they have a big talent. Mm -hmm. Also... They're on the road. They can't fall asleep after a show. Someone gives them a pill, says, go to sleep. You can take this. Then they get up in the morning. They're groggy. Or in Bonnie Raitt's case, she started to drink in the morning. And they just get hooked on this mm. stuff. And it's that vicious cycle of stay up, go down. Stay up, get down. And also, when people get famous... All sorts of people come crawling out of the woodwork, willing to just give them stuff. Yeah. I mean, there are certain people who are completely immune to it. Um, Beyonce, I would assume Taylor Swift. I know Adele. I mean, these girls don't take drugs. Yeah. But there are others who are immensely talented. Yeah. I mean, Stevie Nicks, Gaga's had drug issues. You know, all these women, especially women, but a lot of guys, too. I mean, look, Prince. I mean, Michael Jackson. Mm. You know, many, many great talents have yeah. died. Michael Hutchins, Chris Cornell. I mean, the list is endless. Um, but in terms of the women, which is what I'm interested in, in terms of the drugs and the insecurity and the 
sleepless nights and the bad love affairs and the bad business decisions, which is why I wrote a book called Nobody Ever Asked Me About the Girls, because nobody did. And then I really went into a deep dive on it. And these women have told me, you know, the guys in my band after a show could go out with their whores, but I had to go back to my yeah. room alone. Yeah. And the only one who ever told me, actually, she went back to her room and read a book was Linda Ronstadt, I think. I loved and her. Every, oh, yeah. it's so tragic what I happened loved to her. her. I mean, Linda was misdiagnosed with Lyme disease and she has Parkinson's and she can't sing anymore. I mean, that's the tragedy of that. That voice. Joni Mitchell yeah. had a horrible, horrible stroke and was in a home for two years, unable to talk, and then is pulling herself back. Talk about the grit Resilience. of that woman. Yeah. But I talked to her a lot about drugs, and she said, no, I never was really a druggie. Cigarettes and po coffee, that was my poison. Yeah. So. You know, um, just to talk about blues again for a minute, because I'm a big bluesaholic. I I could go sit in any blues club, and just just be there. I love everything about the sound, and so the there's there are these different pockets of blues. Like there's uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, there's Greg Allman and the Allman Brothers and that whole thing, and then there's Chicago. Uh, buddy blues, guy, yeah. you know, all of these different influence California blues like Emma Jones and the the sounds are these in these intense sounds that are created uh, life experiences in simple messages, but each note is packed with passion and suffering <laughs> i mean Pain. i i don't know why but i feel like it's got me you connect captured. with it yeah and it's got me totally captured i used to go to chicago to this club that had three rooms and you would go there'd be one blues band playing and then you they'd finish and you'd walk to this other room where another band would start, and then the, a new band would be doing, and I would just go back and forth and dance and listen and dance with people that felt the same way. And so what, what is it about these different pockets? Because they have different sounds. Greg Allman, I'm sorry. I just think his voice, that sound, I would go to Allman Brother concerts at the Beacon by myself because nobody I knew would go with me, and I, by myself all this the time. When he was alive, yeah, I would be. They're coming to New York. Guess who's going to be there? Front row. I had to sit there, and I would just be mesmerized by that sound. Yeah. What is that? I, you know, it's so weird because I am a white Jewish woman from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, but I always connected with black gospel music and blues. Somehow it's just so emotional, it's so powerful, yeah. it just gets to you. It's like, I, I can hear Mavis Staples yeah. or Mahalia Jackson or 
I mean, I can't even begin. So many wonderful Sister Rosetta Thorpe. That music would just make me cry. It takes you over. Yeah. It just takes you it's over. It's powerful, yeah. emotional, spiritual yeah. music. It is. And I'm not really spiritual, but that music is the yeah. closest I get to it. Um, I once was driven on Highway 61 from New Orleans. No, wait. From Nashville all the way down to New Orleans, then through Clarksdale, Mississippi, or I may be getting the geography wrong, but then ending up in Austin, Texas. And somebody said to me, it's a psychedelic ride. You're going to pass where Robert Johnson made his pact with the devil on the crossroads, and you're just going to feel like you're on another planet. And so I specifically played Tapes in the Car, of Alan Lomax's Sounds of the South, which was spirituals and blues yeah. and yeah. slave chants and yeah. all sorts of... And it really was, I felt like I was tripping. I mean, I took LSD once in my life, and it felt, that drive felt like mm. that. And then when I got to Austin, there was a club called Antones, which was a blues club, and Hubert Sumlin, who was... Howlin' Wolf's guitar player, and Pine Top Perkins, who was Muddy Waters' piano player, and they were still alive at the time, and they were performing every night, and I would go to the back room of their dressing room and sit and just listen to them tell mm. stories, and it was just to hear these old guys talk, mm. and I was lucky enough at Vanity Fair early on to have Annie Leibovitz be able to photograph all these guys. We just found them, mm. we photographed them, and, and at the same time, I could listen to the Bad Brains, who were like a right. reggae punk rock band from Washington, right. D.C., and be totally yeah. taken away by yeah. them. Yeah. So my taste kind of covers the waterfall. Yeah, I I love reggae too. I I, I think um, music that takes you away is is it's God's music. It's supposed yeah. to it it does what you need, and and we all need to be taken away, sort of lifted out of whatever we're feeling. I I can't work, I can't design listening to music because I get so distracted yeah, I know, by the too. music. I know. I just want to get up and dance and move and I can't no. I can't sit still. I, I never have music on when I write. Even when no. we do our photo shoots, oh. everybody says, Oh, let's put on some music. And it's like no, I can't. I can't. Concentrate. I'll be. Uh, I will be so distracted. I don't know how to take that out and and not be a part of it. Right. It just it owns me. I it just takes that. me. So uh, so the poor models <laughs> are dancing around and doing on their own to they're, silence. They're to silence. They're so used to it. They they do their thing. A lot of them are athletic, so they have a head for it. But nobody understands why, and I can't explain it. But the no. minute you put music on, I'm good for shit. I won't be able to do any of this because I'm going to be with that sound. No, I understand it completely. I can't. I never have music on when I write. I hear people saying, "She doesn't like music." Oh. I was like, "Oh, oh God!" You know, they don't I don't get even. It. I, you don't even bother she explaining like it. Music. I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" So, what's your favorite karaoke song? Oh my God. I don't really have one. Huh? 
I mean, the only time I ever did karaoke in my life, to be honest, was John McEnroe's house at the top of the building where he has a tower apartment. It's 360 degree view of Manhattan. And I was quite drunk and his daughter and I did 99 problems. Tracy's 99 <laughs> problems. But other than that, I don't... My best friend, Fran Leibowitz, will tell you I have a very good singing voice. And I used to have a very good singing voice. I can't hit the notes now. But the songs that I would sing are standards, jazz, Chris Connor, Anita really? O'Day, Sarah Vaughan. But only around my house. Only to oh, like really? one or two people. I never sang publicly, except at my bat mitzvah. <laughs> but, and I was one of the first girls in New York to ever get bat mitzvah. But no, I don't, I really haven't been to a lot of karaoke bars. That's no. very interesting. I think, um, I think singing um, is another important, in, in the wellness world, singing, dancing, laughing, are life extenders. Yes, laughing, certainly. And um, so being able to just sing, um, we're due for a karaoke party here. There's a big screen back there. We're going to roll out. And it, it really is um, a wonderful experience to watch a group of people you know in a business setting. And all of a sudden, there are these voices, and you think, this time you've had that voice right. in you like yeah. so there there are people who really sing like you that either don't express it or tried maybe for a little bit um but music is such a part of our souls and and the way we think when you were growing up you said that your parents were playing certain music what did they dance to no. the music? No. no. Not in front of me, no. <laughs> um, well, they listened to classical music, WQXR, every weekend. But I also think we had a lot of sort of left-wing Woody Guthrie kind of folk music in the house. So I was exposed to that kind of music and lead belly and blues stuff at a very early age. But I also snuck out of my house at the age of 12 to go down to the village to see Thelonious Monk, Miles Davis, wow, all of those jazz guys. That was adventurous. I mean, John Coltrane, yeah, I look ridiculous. The more I think about it, I used to palm my hair up in a bun on the top of my head. Uh, I would wear sheath dresses, sleeveless, with high heels, put on makeup, tottering into these places. I don't know how I got in, and I must have looked silly, but I got in, and... Um, yeah, Five Spot, Village Vanguard, like that. Then I also would go to the rock and roll shows, the Brooklyn Fox, those kind of shows. And um, I just, the minute I heard, I think it was Elvis Presley, that first album with the pink and the green right. and the one the Clash copied later, that's probably one of the first records that ever got me out of the house. Yeah, I just knew... I used to listen to jazz under the covers on a transistor radio, and I just knew there's something else out yeah. there. Even though I came from a very liberal house with, you know, fairly intellectual parents, and I didn't go to private schools, but I was, and I hated school, but I, we had a lot of books in the house, and I just, 
I had a pretty good childhood and sort of it was enriched by music yeah. and books and like that. And I went to the movies every weekend, down to Lowe's 83rd Street. Yeah. Um, but I also knew there was something else out there, yeah. Yeah. something bigger. And I guess starting out with Led Zeppelin and the mm -hmm. Rolling Stones was the beginning of that trip. Yeah, I, you know, the rock and roll shows were really amazing. I, I you know, m circumstances in my life threw me to places that typically I should never have been in. But I, uh, my best girlfriend at Washington Irving High School, her father somehow had a connection with the Peppermint Lounge. And so, so Joey D in the store. So we were yeah. sixteen, and we would be able to get in to the Peppermint Lounge because of her father, and it was live music. Um, there was Joey D and the Starlighters and other bands, and and you would dance on and Jackie this sort Kennedy of stage. was doing the twist, right? And <laughs> so, in be like they would take a break, and then they would have. They would be dancers, and then they would have in-between dancers. And she and I were in-between dancers. And so teased hair up to here, yes. a million individual lashes, makeup for days, and we would dance and dance and drink water and sweat. But whenever there was a rock and roll show, they would somehow contact the Peppermint Lounge for the in-between dancers to dance in the rock and roll shows. Remember that, I don't know if you remember, there would be dancers sometimes between sets. So we would go and stand backstage and when they, it was at Brooklyn Park and wherever they would be at. No, <laughs> are you kidding? And so we would, we were so happy to get into the Peppermint Lounge. So we would then be backstage. I remember standing next to Smokey Robinson and thinking, what are those eyes? Oh my God, he's so gorgeous in that voice. And then, okay. And we would just do our twist and everything and their hair would be bouncing around. And I danced in so many rock and roll shows and Jackie Wilson dropping to the floor That's with that. Fantastic. I saw all of these performers and, and you think, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I belong here. Yes. I belong here. These are, this is incredible. The rock and roll shows were a major part of the experience for people with music because we didn't get very much on TV. No. And, and Shindig and the Tammy right. Show. And, and that was Dick it. Clark Dick Clark's American Bands. But right? you could never really think that you could see music until you could go to a rock and right. roll show, wherever right. it may be. Right. And so they were major. They yep. were such a major part of access to music. And I, I just know how lucky I was. I mean, yeah, me I too. I mean, aren't you? I'm glad that I grew up then. Me because too. <laughs> I just think that I had everything available to me. I didn't have the internet. I didn't have the phone. I didn't have social media. But I had life. Mm. And I had experiences. And I could see people close mm. up. I mean, Jackie Wilson told me once when I interviewed him that when he played the Apollo, 
He said you had to be good because half the people in the audience you. was better than they, they were. Yeah. And Michael Jackson stood in the wings as a child when he was with the Jackson Five watching Jackie Wilson. I mean, watching him perform, yeah. watching James Brown. Right. That's where he got all those I mean, moves from. I, I, I think the Jackie Wilson, James Brown thing, James Brown was going out with one of the girls um, from the Peppermint Lounge, this girl Jackie, who was one of the main dancers. And he would come to see her and like James Brown, James Brown. But there was always this thing of like, who's better? Jackie Wilson or James Brown. And I actually was a Jackie Wilson fan. Yeah. I thought his theatrics. I'm so happy were, that there's someone else who knows who Jackie Wilson still is. I know. It's sad, but true. Yeah. It's sad, but, you know. Well, musicians do. All the musicians yeah. still do. I mean, and he would do this thing with a cape. I don't know if you've ever, you oh, ever yeah. saw it. Uh -huh. And he would do this whole thing. And then he would spin around and then drop with his legs crossed and drop to the floor. I could, I used to be- Wait, are we talking about Jackie Wilson? Jackie Wilson. Yeah. And then have this big cape. Yeah, and James Brown stole that. And, yeah. <laughs> so I think, in my mind, Jackie Wilson was the original. I'm sure you're right. And he was, yes. he was the one. So Elvis Presley, um, I never was a fan. I didn't understand him. I didn't get it. Um, everybody loved him. And then after he died, I saw the leather group and that whole, you know, that thing in the black leather. And I said, how, remember when he had his comeback, I think after the army or something, and I thought, how did I miss this? Oh my God. He was really good because he was blues and soulful yeah, and yeah. like, I totally missed that part of him. Yeah. What do you know about well, him? Well, I liked, well, I never interviewed him. Thank God, something before my time. <laughs> but um, I did love that first record, but I didn't really pay attention to what he looked like or anything. I just thought he sounded black. I love that music. It totally resonated mm -hmm. with me. And then when he got sort of, in the Vegas period in 1972, and he was getting fat. He played at Madison Square Garden, and I remember David Bowie flew over to us. David wasn't flying. I knew David from a year before that, and my husband was working at RCA, and Elvis was signed to RCA, and David got signed to RCA, and David wasn't flying for like a year or so. He was scared to fly, but he flew to New York to see Elvis Presley wow. at the Garden. Wow. And Richard and I went to see him that night, and I thought, okay, you know, this is too Vegasy for me. I just, to me, it was yeah. like Wayne Newton or something. Well, that's what I thought. Yeah, but then, and I didn't even see the movie Elvis because I just, no, I'm I not a big fan of Basil yeah. Lemon's movies. But besides that, I just wasn't that interested. Yeah. I didn't care about Austin Butler. And then one night, I was looking at video on demand, and I thought, okay, I'll just watch this. And I watched the movie, and I saw the whole thing. And I thought, okay, it's all right. And then at the end, you see Elvis Presley, fat, sweating, practically at the end of his life, the real Elvis Presley singing four minutes of Unchained Melody, I, I think. Know. And that four I minutes know. was better than the whole movie. And also it made me think like, 
ah, I get it. Yeah. He really cared about this yeah. music. He really grew up on black music, on gospel, on church, yeah. on blues. And, you know, so I had a different appreciation for yeah. it, but I can't say I ever listened yeah. no, to a I, lot of his stuff. I, I feel the same, but there is that. I heard him and saw him sing in that black leather, and which was a very big influence on what um, I did for Joan Jett. Oh, yeah. And I love Joan, and yeah, I love doing great. things for her. And we and she loved Elvis, so it was like so much fun doing things with her. But Elvis used to order clothes through this um, store in Las Vegas, my gowns, and he would order the same gown, white gowns always, for three different gowns and for three different blonde girlfriends. And, you know, I they would say, don't tell anybody. That's and I was like, hilarious. I won't tell anybody. I'm like, And I didn't because people tell me to keep a secret. I exactly. keep a secret. Me too, same thing. And, and I just, it was amazing. And he would choose them. He chose them. He picked them. They would send them to him or something, and then they would say, we have one, we need to, two more. And I was like, really? It's the same size, and like two more? Yes. And then they explained to me why, and I thought, well, that's so cool. I mean, I, I, you know, here's this legend, and he's buying three of the same gowns repeatedly. Same sizes or different same sizes? Same sizes. <laughs> and then he would pick another style. They were always white and it was always for blondes. And so I thought, well, oh, well, that's cool. What about Frank Sinatra? Oh, my God. I adored Frank Sinatra. I mean, I, again, that's another music I grew up to, not in my house, but I had a best friend whose parents would listen to Frank Sinatra. So all the 1950s Capitol records I would listen to. Yeah. And when I worked at Interview Magazine, I would do interviews for them. And Andy wanted me to interview Frank Sinatra, Andy Warhol, and like an idiot i'm so i was so young and so stupid and frank sinatra's publicist said frank needs to see the questions first so i being an asshole said oh no i won't do that oh my like, god so stupid i should have Are done you? anything to get in the room what? i know i thought that's not journalist integrity blah blah oh blah i'm not telling god. him and andy said no don't show him the questions first and so we never did the interview. No. It broke my, I, I, I kicked myself to this day. Oh however, however, when I was at the Post, I once wrote a column about all the rock and roll musicians who loved Sinatra. And he wrote me a letter because he had famously hated rock and roll because it kind of put him out of business for a minute. Yeah. And I mean, not really, but you know. Yeah. And... He wrote me a letter saying, what a wonderful thing you have done. This is so great. I love this column. I had no idea these... Anytime you want to see me in New York, call Bobby Morris, blah, oh, blah, blah, blah. And I got tickets to every single one of his concerts for the rest of his life. I just loved him. I love that voice. Yeah. That phrasing is so brilliant. And I was once backstage at Radio City for one of the Grammys, I think. Yeah. And Bono was giving him a Lifetime Achievement Award because Bono, of course, had met him. He met him once in Las Vegas because you two went to see Sinatra. 
and Sinatra introduced them from the stage, and he said something like, this is the number one rock group in the world. They certainly don't spend their money on their wardrobe. And um, then they went to his, Bono went to his house, and I said to him, you have to describe the house to me in Palm Springs. I want to know everything about it. Right. And he said, I'll tell you one day. He still hasn't. Really? But at any rate, I was backstage. I never forgot this. Cindy Adams, U2's manager at the time, Paul McGinnis, myself, Bono. Bono made this long, flowery speech about he's the Empire State Building, he's the Statue of Liberty, you know, typical Bono. Yeah. And he gave this award to Frank Sinatra, Lifetime Achievement, and Frank was starting to lose it a little bit mm. by then. So he kind of came out and mumbled and... He was not really coherent. And I remember Cindy saying, get him off, someone get him off. Mm. But he came backstage and he looked at his wife with this pointed glass award and he said, you could really give someone a knock on the head <laughs> with this thing. <laughs> and that was, I just yeah. thought, that was the only he time really, I really met him. I mean, uh, talk about an influencer. I, my mother and Frank Sinatra are almost exactly were, almost exactly the same age. And I remember my mother just adoring his music and dancing around the house and doing some stupid gestures. And I'm like, Mom, cool it on the whatever it is you're doing. And, I, and so automatically I was not going to like Frank Sinatra oh. because my mother was right. enthralled. And then I remember years later... I did something, and somebody from the Sinatra, whatever, I can't even remember what it was, gave me tickets to Radio City to see Frank Sinatra. So I had this amazing seat in the middle, on the aisle, center, Radio City is so great, and Frank Sinatra, and I was sure he was singing to me. I was positive. But then I remember my mother said the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, I could swear he's singing to me. That's how intimately yeah. he delivered a song. You know, to connect to an audience. Like, what yeah. was that? And I, I, was, I was totally enthralled. I, was, I had a raging crush on Dean Martin. Oh, you did? Like, out of control crush on him. I didn't get the whole thing, the Rat Pack thing or any of that, but I did have a crush on Dean Martin. And then when I heard Frank Sinatra in person singing to me, I was like, okay. Directly to you. I, I'm, yes. I'm, 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 he owns it. He's, yeah. he's the king. No, he, his phrasing, his command of a lyric and the songs, and he always would say who wrote the songs, which I loved. That's what I thought was great. Yeah. Well, I think... <laughs> You and I could talk forever. Days. And ever. And I love our friendship. And I love that um, we have history together that is shared through our lives. And so I think what we'll do is we're going to do episodes of our little chitter-tatter. Perfect. How's that? That's great. There and I'm go. honored to be doing this with you, Norma, because I have such a high regard for you. You're really one of the greats, and it's a pleasure. And I love talking to you. We could just gossip for hours Ever. and days. You Forever. know that. 
So, so thank you very much. Thank you for and having me. And we will break this up into really cool segments. Good. And they'll be hearing from us again soon on something, I'm sure. Anytime. Okay. I'm all I yours. Love you. Thank I you. I love, love you, you too. Thank you, Norma. Bye. -bye. Bye.